I'm Dr. Sky Katz of Scott from Health with Heart, and this podcast is a celebration of the purpose, capacity, and magic of the human body and its ability to heal and take us to new places. Join me on a journey exploring new aspects of medicine and healing for our collective well being. Welcome to another episode of Health with Heart with me, Dr. Skye. I'm in the studio today with my colleague and friend, Dr. Kim Comline, who's going to share some wisdom with us about my favorite organ system, the microbiome, with a unique focus on practical tips in the context of pediatrics. So we are going to get into the details with you of what the microbiome is, its relationship to your brain and your mood, its relationship to what you eat. But I think the most exciting part of this conversation is going to be some really practical take-home tips for parents out there to improve the biomes of their children and in so doing improve the health outcomes of their children. So a little bit about Kim. Kim started out studying dietetics and she gained experience as a pediatric clinical dietitian working towards a master's in early childhood intervention. After this, she continued to study medicine and has worked in general practice and HIV prevention research, growing her passion for preventing disease rather than curing it. And recently, she moved to the UK, where she has continued her interest in preventative medicine and nutrition and has been working on the National Diabetes Prevention Programme. Thank you so much for being here. It's always interesting to frame knowledge in the context of who is sharing it with us. Tell us a little bit about what led you to medicine, how you began your dietetics journey and how this new interest in the microbiome has emerged for you in your work. Hi, Sky. Thanks so much for having me here. It's wonderful to see you. So I started off in dietetics because um, I wanted to be a dietitian, but obviously working in the field of nutrition, um, as exciting as it was, I just wanted to learn more. I just felt like there was more to it than only nutrition. And I worked in pediatric nutrition in the UK for a few years, which was really exciting. And that led me to pediatric HIV. And once I started working with children with HIV, then I realized I needed to learn more about medicine because at that point it was all about ARV. So I, start, I studied medicine and continued in the HIV field, linking it a lot with nutrition. And at that point... Um, that's when I actually realized how important the gut was, because I'm sure you've heard, um, most doctors will know this, but a child that is breastfeeding from a mother who has HIV, if they are exclusively breastfeeding, they won't really attain the virus for the mom. And that was the first time I realized how powerful breastfeeding is and how important the integrity of the gut membrane is. And in the years since then, I've worked a lot with nutrition and preventative health, chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity, trying to mix nutrition and, and medicine together. It's been quite a powerful combination. And then I became a mom and I've had three small children and I've failed dismally at feeding them properly at some points and tried in other areas to feed them well. And so much has come out in the last 10 years about health and the gut microbiome in adults, uh, especially working in diabetes now. Uh, there's such an amazing array of research showing how your gut can help prevent diabetes. 
and I wanted to try and start this in my children's lives. So I've tried to connect the dots a little bit and tease out a little bit of the information and research out there and kind of apply it to the family situation. Let's start at the very beginning. There seems to be more and more research that is supporting the beginning of a child's health starting almost at conception and the the maternal well-being and mental state and metabolic health having such a meaningful and measurable impact on the future health of these of any child. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about that in the context of the biome. Okay, well, it's so interesting because if you look at the research historically, we used to think that the child didn't really get any exposure to the mother's microbiome until birth. And we used to think it was the first exposure was through the birth canal. But now, if you look at some of the more recent studies, they definitely think there is a link between the mom's microbiome and the child's exposure to it, not directly, but indirectly. So the mother's health, um, and not just the microbiome, but the overall health of the mother, seem to play such a pivotal role in the child developing a strong immune system. And already from birth, all those factors are beginning to play a role. And one of them is the mother's microbiome, but also the mother's stress levels, the mother's environment, the mother's exposure to antibiotics, all of these factors filter through the placenta in indirect ways and expose the child to what needs to be exposed to to start building a strong immune system. And I suppose for those listening, just maybe to just talk through that process in the way that you prime the immune system is to expose it to small little amounts of things. In the same way that a vaccine works, I suppose. Exactly. So interestingly, when I was first practicing dietetics, so before I even studied medicine, we used to try and avoid certain foods to prevent allergies. And over time, we've realized it's actually the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, they're now figuring out that if you expose children in small amounts, they they create a tolerance to it and their body learns how to deal with it. And even exposure during pregnancy is now important. So the mother's diet and the variety in the mother's diet is extremely important because it will indirectly expose the child to those foods. But also the variety in the mother's diet will improve the mother's microbiome massively. And then all those little bacteria send out little chemical messages which affect the mom's immunity. And that those immune cells transfer through the placenta and give the child that exposure so it's quite nuanced and it's it's also developing there are a few things scientists are not 100% sure about how much exposure the child gets to the mom's microbiome but it definitely affects the child from the day the child is conceived. I think it's so common for women in pregnancy to have strange cravings and ameliorate their nausea in healthful or hindering ways and this is a good reminder to mothers to be cognizant of what they're eating mm. when they're actually pregnant. And once the child's born and goes through the birth canal, they are going to be exposed once again directly to the mom's microbiome. And if the mom's microbiome is unhealthy, the child will inherit the unhealthy microbiome. So maybe it's important also to just mention here that your microbiome is not just your gut biome. Mm. It's 
exactly. the organisms covering your skin exactly. and the organisms in every orifice. Exactly. Your mouth, your yes. vagina, your you know, all, all these orifice have their own biomes yes. that are unique and different and important in their own way. Exactly. So the child will be exposed through the birth canal. If the child is born by cesarean section, it will be exposed through the, the skin will probably be the first contact. And then the child's exposed to the mom's microbiome by physical touch and contact, which is why it's so important. And then obviously through kisses and hugs and cuddles, all those things are going to colonize the child with all the different bacteria that the mom has. So the mom wants to be a host of millions of good bacteria and she wants to share them with her child. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about mode of delivery. Mm. There's certainly in our context in South Africa, I think it's better in the UK. Mm. The threshold for doing a cesarean section here is extremely low. Mm. And um, more often than not, people are not having vaginal deliveries. And I'm certain that this has massive implications for not going through that birth canal mm. and being colonized with vaginal bacteria, but also rectal, mm. because that's so mm. in, immersed in mm. in the birthing process. Is there any are there any studies that you're aware of that link method of birth or mode of delivery to health outcomes? There's a study that was done in 2022 that looked at health outcomes, and there were significant differences. So one of the things that came up was breathing problems after delivery were higher in children that had cesarean sections. Also, um, sleeping problems and behavioral problems were higher in children with cesarean sections. And in the long term, there's been a strong correlation with asthma and obesity with children with cesarean sections. So on all fronts, the, n the normal delivery does better. It's without a doubt important to try and deliver naturally. Also, I think it's important for us to mention we are not trying to terrify mothers yes. or or burden them with this enormous responsibility. Mm. Um, there's enough responsibility that comes mm. with being a, a mother or a father. Mm. But I think that just having all of this awareness is empowering and will enable people to make better yes. decisions. Look, I had I ended up having three cesarean sections and I, I lived with guilt and regret because I really did not want that. And you also have to understand that the cesarean section saved my child's life. Mm. So we don't want to demonize it. But there is some good news. There was a really interesting study that said if you do have a cesarean section, if you do exclusive breastfeeding for six months afterwards, you can recover the lack of exposure at that point with just breastfeeding. So let's talk a little bit about breast milk. Mm. Breast milk is so magical. Mm. And I think what you said earlier about it being so integral to the integrity of keeping your gut lining healthy mm. is a good place to start. Yeah, so breastfeeding is, it's wonderful on so many levels and we, we don't want to put pressure on mums because it can be difficult, but if at all possible, it is absolutely the cheapest, most wonderful way to feed your child and bond with your child. But there's these little magical molecules in breast milk called HMOs, which are human milk oligosaccharides. And the interesting thing about them is that they are not digestible. So scientists now think that these molecules are purely to feed the gut microbiome. Isn't that amazing? So I just think that we're so designed to, to live in harmony with these bacteria. And I think what all this research on the gut microbiome kind of 
comes, you know, what comes home to me the strongest is that we have to live to be in communication with the environment around us. And our gut is the interface between our body and the environment. So we have to feed our bacteria. And human breast milk is the first step in feeding those bacteria. And you make them strong and they make you strong. And you can start that from birth, which is really wonderful. And obviously, you know, it's not just, doesn't just start with breastfeeding. It starts with pregnancy. So mom looking after herself, making sure she's feeding her gut microbiome during pregnancy, hopefully having a natural delivery, if not trying to recover from that and using breast milk. So I, I feel like we need to give mm. people a visual for this kind of halo of defense, this aura of defense that lines your gut lining and and emanates from your skin. And mm. so it's the it really is your your first defense. Yes. And when there is a lack of diversity and a lack of harmony in that mm. ecosystem, then it's vulnerable to intrusion mm. and it's vulnerable to letting molecules and organisms crossing barriers that should be closed. Exactly. So you have 70% of your immune system sitting right there under that one lining, that one layer thick of your gut lining. So your body knows that this is your big entryway. And so it's put all of its immune, uh, well, a lot of its immunity there. So you've got your immunity protecting you. You've got a thin layer of gut lining protecting you. And then we've got this amazing army of microbes protecting you. That outnumber your human cells. I, it's incredible. There are so many of them. And it's I kind of think about it, if you go into nature, if you go into the bush or you go into a forest, an ecosystem that has got diversity, different plants, different animals, different insects is so much more beautiful and so much more healthy. And it's almost like a forest inside your gut. And every nutrient you eat, you've got to think about how you are nourishing them. And some of the food that we eat, we don't even digest. It's purely for the gut microbes. So I just think it helps me because we've always known you need to eat a lot of fiber, but it helps me to understand why. Mm. So we're talking about prebiotics. Yes. Yeah. So, so I suppose if you start thinking about the nutrition of it, this is the why. You've got that beautiful forest of microbes in your gut doing amazing things for you. They protect your immunity. They help your metabolism. If they are healthy, you should not struggle with things like obesity. But they're there. But I suppose the next thing is just trying to understand how you can encourage that. Let's talk a little bit about obesity since you've introduced it. I think often in medicine, it's, there's a sort of a little bit of a chicken egg situation and it's hard to know what started mm -hmm. first because we know that if you have a low fiber, refined diet, that you're going to cultivate the wrong kinds of organisms or an imbalance mm. in the diversity of your organisms, of your biome. And that's going to lead to absorbing calories in a certain way. Mm. Chat to us a little bit about what, what do we know about the influence of microbes on how we break down energy and absorb energy? Okay, so it's actually quite complicated. So I'll just try and simplify it. When you eat food, your gut microbiome break down some of it and they create metabolites. And those metabolites can do a few things. So some of them are short-chain fatty acids, which we know have different functions. They're, they're three types that do a lot of things for us. They help with the health of our gut, but they also help with our metabolism. And they are linked to, I mean, I find this amazing, but if you get the right metabolites, 
you should feel fuller quicker so you should mm. feel more satisfied after a meal you also it will also affect how you break down your glucose and your fats and it can even affect your cholesterol so there's that whole chemical pathway happening but your gut microbiome is also really linked to your brain and if you have a healthy gut microbiome you're not going to have as many stress hormones being released so you don't have that whole psychological problem with eating that can cause obesity so that's the other mechanism and that's also quite complicated um, so if you also those metabolites also turn on and off genes so it's epigenetic so you might for example have a latent gene for obesity and when you if you don't have the right gut microbiome or the right bacteria you might be feeding your or you might be having the wrong bacteria they can turn on the gene for obesity. So it can have an epigenetic effect. So you have got the, the chemical side of it, the epigenetic side of it, and then also the hormonal side of it. So those gut microbiota, they affect your hormones. And those are all interlinked with your appetite, your satiety, your insulin resistance. So it's a little bit complicated, but there are lots of mechanisms um, that link a healthy gut to not being obese or vice versa. So I think we've seen this in a really dramatic way in patients who've received stool transplants for various reasons. And this is something that I think is quite new in mm -hmm. medicine mm -hmm. um, and yet defined. But I've read quite a few case reports where a stool transplant has been done to cure a terrible infection. Or in the context of David Perlmutter's work, even with neurodegenerative disease, mm. And where the donor has had a very different body habitus to the re receiver of the stool. Mm. And then the receiver has put on an enormous amount of weight without changing their lifestyle after the transplant. And so I think we, we're only sort of, yeah, it's the tip of the iceberg and I don't think we understand it all just yet. But it's really exciting to think that we, we might be able to shift these sorts of things with microbes rather than drugs. Yes, and it's, it's the like you said, the tip of the iceberg and definitely an area to watch. There are also twin studies that show the similar kind of things. So you have the same genetics, but maybe you, the diet is different or exposure in different environments. And then they've noticed that the gut microbiome is different in the twins. And that is possibly the reason the one may be obese and the other one might not be. So there's a huge interplay going on here and science is just opening its eyes to it at the moment in the last 10 years it's been an explosion of information and I think it's quite exciting because there is opportunity for research to cure illnesses with altering the gut mm. microbiome or you know like we you said there have been studies where they've had sterile mice and they've introduced a stool um, sample to them and we've seen obesity develop or even mood changes there's been so much happening in animal models there's still space and a little bit of a question over it because of lots of the human studies haven't really shown that just the microbiome is playing a role lots of them it just seems there's an interplay of other things so it's all it's kind of unfolding at the moment but um, as we learn more about it, I think it just empowers us as people, just makes us realize our diet is more important than we realized. And our diet has changed so much with the industrialization of food. Should we talk a little bit about refined foods, mm. foods that come in shiny packages, easy convenience foods? 
Yeah. So this is, you know, I think as a parent, this is can be a little bit of a guilt-inducing discussion. So I don't want parents to feel guilty. I have three children. I've done it all wrong. But what's amazing about this and what I want people to realize is your body can heal and you can always recover. So I think, you know, I work with di- pre-diabetics and diabetics that are much older and you can even recover the gut microbiome and the metabolic health of somebody who's 60 and they've been eating a terrible diet for 60 years. So there is hope. There is hope. And I think we're seeing more and more pre-diabetes and insulin resistance in young children. And so it's so important it's that so important. everybody wakes up and shares this message. When I was working as a pediatric dietitian in Manchester, I used to run a clinic for childhood obesity. I had children in that clinic that were eight years old with type 2 diabetes. Now that means that their their insulin resistance has developed through lifestyle in only 8 years. Mm-hmm. So someone who's 8 is sitting with the with the cell membrane of a 60-year-old. Mm. So it is becoming more important in children and that's why I'm interested. I just think that if you give your kids a good start, it's going to change their lives going forward, but they can always recover and you can always help them. So should we talk about basic principles? Mm. What are the basic principles of what you would call a healthy diet for a child? So I think there are a few things that I've had to process as a mum and a dietitian and a doctor. Uh, it's all very well knowing everything that's important, but how do we actually, you know, make this real for our kids and for our families? So the one thing is diversity. I think if we just start with diversity, that's probably one of the most important things. You know, I have my youngest little boy. He likes cucumber, cheese, bread. And that's probably he would be happy to live with those three foods. I'm sure a lot of the (laughs) listeners can relate. (laughs) So I think it's important not to get disheartened as a mum and feel like you're failing, but to just try and slowly chip away at it. And, you know, over the years, if I keep persisting and I keep trying and getting him to taste things and try different ways of encouraging things, slowly he has increased his diversity. So as an adult, we know from the American Gut Project that you should be having 30 different plant foods a week to feed those microbiota beautifully. So... That's what I encourage my adult patients to do. And a child's going to have a far less varied diet than that. But you're working towards it. So being aware that that's what you're aiming for helps. Uh, So I've already introduced the concept to my children that they need to be eating variety. And I, I I don't do it all the time, but I've even helped them. They're learning to read and write. So they write down all the different plant foods they ate and count them. And it's kind of like collecting stickers for them and that's encouraged them. It's just made them aware. And I'm kind of getting Sam from having three different foods. He's probably on eight now. (laughs) (laughs) And I see that as progress, but it's better than just being happy with three. Mm. And it's also the psychology of your child and the environment in your family. And there are some things that we can chat about later that have worked to increase diversity. Hopefully kissing him a lot helps. Yes. (laughs) So that, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but maybe, you know, I can bring it in here because we feel a little bit frustrated as mums because we can't, we can't force our kids to do anything. 
And sometimes, you know, you just get disheartened. And I looked up all the research on what are the most influencing things in a child's diet. So what can make the biggest difference to take a child from baby who's having breast milk to an adult who's eating really a diverse diet with lots of fiber, lots of probiotics and prebiotics and all the things we need for our gut. And interestingly enough, the most significant thing that determines a child's diet into adulthood is the mom's diet. Oh my gosh. Can you believe it? But that actually made me feel so much better because if I eat okay, that's going to have the biggest impact. So instead of trying to force your children, just focus on your own diet, eat well in front of them, nurture your own microbiome, because then you're gonna be passing that on to them. So there's a physical transfer from your microbiome, but also there is that psychological and social transfer. And maybe they'll start off not eating so well, but they will eat better if you eat better. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just modeling. I'm always it's struck modeling. by this when I, I mean, my youngest is almost two and she mimics everything that we do. And I can, I'm just kind of observing all these neural circuits being laid down mm. of, I don't know, blowing her nose and mm. having a shower and putting on her panties, <laughs> <Sweet>. <laughs> sharing. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think it makes sense, actually, that, Absolutely. that so, what you model yes. is what manifests. So my biggest advice to mums is to just start with yourself and get your get your body right get your diet right and your children will see it and when they're 25 it might take 25 years it will have filtered through i think that's probably the most useful thing i can share with mums tell us a little bit about fermented foods i know mm. that this is something that i struggle to integrate into my family's diet mm. um short of kombucha which everybody wants a lot of <laughs> um do you have any advice for us there? So fermented foods are difficult because they take a little bit of uh, acquired, they're an acquired taste. But once again, I think if you're eating them and they're on the table, your children will eventually start tasting them. So I have developed a way of feeding my kids now. And please don't think that I have this right. If you came to my house, you would be shocked. But I'm trying. Okay, So these are the things that sometimes work. Instead of plating up food for my children, I now put things out on a platter. I try and add loads of color, different fiber foods, and some fermented foods. So it's all there in front of them. And then I start helping myself. My husband starts helping himself. And they have it in front of them. And, and they have autonomy. They, yeah, they actually do eat more. Um, so if it's there, and often I have to try and encourage them. So sauerkraut is a nice one, but remember you need to get the sauerkraut that has not been pasteurized. So just check the labels and you can just, if you make a sandwich, you can put a tiny little bit mm -hmm. in there. I suppose even starting getting them used to tastes of pickles and those kind of things helps with that, you acquiring know, acquiring that, that kind yeah. of taste. What I do, I, I do things quite sneakily, so... <laughs> I try and uh, give my kids kefir, but <laughs> my daughter, she's like, Mom, this tastes like this yogurt's got lemon juice in it. <laughs> so I've started just adding it little bit by little bit to their normal yogurt and slowly changing things in that way. So you just do it very slowly. Mm. You have it in the house and 
yeah, those are kind of the tips that I have for now. I'm, I'll probably develop some more in the years to come. <laughs> we'll do a sequel. <laughs> Let's loop back to fiber and going to mm. the loo every day because I think that this is another thing that parents of young children mm. often struggle with. Um, I think constipation mm. constipation is a massive problem for, for many, many people and I think it comes back to fiber and hydration. Mm. And so whilst you're not... The focus isn't only on feeding your microbiome, but it's mm. also on taking out mm. the things that shouldn't be hanging around in your gut for a long time. Yes. So, I mean, going to the toilet regularly and having an easy bowel movement is such a victory. And lots of children struggle with incontinence, actually, fecal incontinence, because they're so constipated. Mm. And more and more I've seen children that have this problem. So there's so much to be said for having fiber in your diet. So fiber has obviously got the important function of feeding the gut microbiome, which we've discussed. So fiber is the substrate that the gut microbiome used to create those metabolites and those short-chain fatty acids. So it's essential for that reason. But also it acts like a broom. So it kind of sweeps the gut out and helps your gut move along. So you've got two types of fiber, insoluble and soluble fiber. So insoluble fiber is more your roughage, and that's got the broom function. It helps things move through. But your soluble fiber expands in the gut if you drink enough water, so drinking enough water with it is important. And what happens is that your as soluble fiber expands, it pushes out your gut, and that creates a reaction which starts peristalsis. And peristalsis is the movement of your gut to try and Excel. excrete. So fiber is essential. Children actually need 20 grams. Well, it depends on their age, but most children need about 20 grams of fiber a day. Adults need 30 grams of fiber a day. And it's always a good test. You should maybe look at your diet and try and see, you know, download my fitness pal and put in your foods for a week and see if you're getting even close to 30 because my guess is most people aren't even close especially children. So we G yeah. give, a, give us an example of a 20 gram day. Okay. So it can be quite easy if you put the right foods in there. So in my in my little perfect day for fiber, I would probably make a chia pudding for for breakfast. So that's quite easy. You get about 150 mils of milk, you put two big tablespoons of chia seeds in it a little bit of vanilla essence, a tiny bit of honey if you want to sweeten it, mix it up, leave it for 15 minutes, put it in the fridge, and you get this nice pudding. But two tablespoons of chia seeds can give you almost 5 to 10 grams of fiber. You're almost halfway there. Mm. Um, and then if you wanted to, you could have a baked potato with baked beans. It's very cheap, very easy. That will also give you 5 to 10 grams of fiber, and you're almost there, and then you have your vegetables at night. So it's easier than you think, but I think the trick is to try and have vegetables at every meal. So with the you know people trying to prevent diabetes and high blood pressure and all those things, we try and advise them to eat half a plate of vegetables. So in kids, that's not always possible, but if you're having half your plate of vegetables you will be getting enough fiber. It's better if it's raw because it's obviously not um, broken down by heat. Also, 
I often use smoothies and things like that. But remember, when you when you blend things, you kind of break the food matrix. And so the fibers lost also, a bit. Yeah, and I think chewing is so important. Mm. Our last episode was so interesting with the functional dentist, and we were mm. talking about how the the how our mouths don't accommodate our teeth anymore. So interesting, um, and yeah. we don't know definitively what the what the driving force around that is, but. I, I'm certain that the fact that our food is so soft and yes. palatable and easy to chew has had an influence on that. Because yes. our fruit these days is not as fibrous as it used to be. Remember, there yeah. is, you know, there's techniques in farming. We get juicy, beautiful, big fruit, but it's not kind of, it's not as much work to digest as it used to be. Yeah. So I think you've got to try and maintain the food matrix as much as possible. So whole grains, whole foods, real foods. So it's just trying to have real food. That well, is what important. about some practical tips for bread? I know that bread oh, is, that's a, good is a pervasive problem for grown-ups and children. What's a good replacement if you are going to eat bread? What bread should you eat? So from the dietetics point of view, you would always try and say you want a bread with lots of fiber in it. That's lower GI. So a seed bread that has got lots of seeds is going to be more nourishing and higher in fiber. And keep you fuller. And keep faster. you fuller for longer. So, but, okay, so there are a few things about bread which I like to think about. The one is the, the fiber content. So look at the label and try and get a high fiber bread. So that means more than six grams per hundred grams. The second thing about bread is... You can get sourdough, which has got some kind of, it's got some probiotics in it. So that's quite nice for your gut health. And if you can get like a rye sourdough or a seeded sourdough, then you're getting the fiber and the probiotics. But the other thing that I really don't love about bread, and I've only realized in the past few years, I've done it wrong for all my years, is just buying the cheap bread off the shelf. Do you know how many chemicals they have to put into that bread to make it last? It never goes off. Exactly. And those chemicals, then this brings us to ultra-processed foods, but those chemicals disrupt your microbiome massively. So if you can try and get from the bakery section, and I know that often means you have to spend more money, uh, I think you might eat less because it's more expensive, but just getting that white bread off the shelf, it's not giving you much mm. and it might be doing harm. a little bit of harm yeah mm. this has been so interesting should we should we wrap up our conversation with some practical take-home tips around how to cultivate a healthy bone for yourself and for your family yeah okay so let me just try and simplify everything because there's a lot we've discussed and might be feeling a little bit confused so the top tips that i have for gut health in adults and children are, as I've mentioned, diversity. So having as many different plant foods as possible. And by the way, I just want to add, this includes different colors. So if you had a pepper that's red and a pepper that's green, that counts as two different foods. Um, if, and also includes herbs and spices. So adding herbs and spices to your meals counts at, at increasing diversity. So you can do little things that your kids don't even notice, like putting cinnamon on their yogurt that adds a plant food to their diet or adding chia seeds or linseeds to their yogurt. So you can add to their diet in little ways to increase diversity. The other thing is to try and have some probiotics, which we've discussed those things, just 
So that's very important. Do you, do you mean a supplemental probiotic? Oh, sorry, in your diet. So so fermented foods. Okay. Um, let's talk. Let's talk about supplements at afterwards. The end. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to go on another tangent. Tangent. So one tip I have for parents is with regards to diversity is when you go shopping, don't always just pick the same veggies from the veggie aisle. I always do that. I kind of have my cucumber, my onion, my lettuce, whatever. Force yourself every time to try a new vegetable. Just take a different one, at least every shop. Maybe also try a new recipe once a week because we get so stuck in routine and habit and that is the enemy in my opinion. You Mm. want to try new things. You want your kids to expose to new things as much as possible. Then we talk about things that can harm the microbiome and we mentioned ultra-processed foods and the other thing is things like pesticides. So ultra-processed foods are any food that has gone through a huge change from what it originally was and it's also got additives. So when you look at a label, you can see if it's ultra-processed food by seeing if there's any ingredient you don't recognize. So for example, if you're going to buy yogurt for your child, pick up two yogurts next to each other. If you get a full cream, normal yogurt, you will see that the only ingredient is milk and maybe they've added some bacteria, which is good. Then you might find, for example, a low-fat Greek yogurt by a different brand. And you look at that and you'll have milk and some additives that you don't recognize. And you would think they're exactly the same, but choose the one that has only milk. So often when something has been made low-fat or low-sugar, they've added something to it to make it palatable. So you've got to be aware of those things and just look at labels. So try and choose things with as few ingredients as possible. If you're choosing a bread, you kind of just want wheat and a little bit of salt and that's kind of the only things you, you know, or it's seeds, but you don't want any chemical additives. So I think when you go shopping, you should just look at labels as much as possible. So that's ultra-processed foods. Pesticides is a big thing. So teaching your kids to wash vegetables, making sure that you wash them, and the best way to avoid pesticides is to maybe grow your own. And then children are they are much more likely to eat the food if you grow them in your garden with your children and then they harvest them and help with cooking that's a really positive way of getting children involved and also having healthier food. So those are really good tips. Yeah, I think I think involving children in food preparation is such an important thing. And I think that's mm. been lost a little bit with convenience meals and the rush that everybody seems to yeah. have to be in at the moment. But um, yeah, yeah, I think to remind people to include their families in food preparation. And to take time out for food preparation and to eat together as a family. So you could just talk about these things forever, but there's there's a social side to eating that helps with all of this. So mm. eating together as a family is so helpful and important. Um, cooking together and convenience has definitely changed the way we do things. And, and heating up a frozen meal has, you know, it loses, you lose a lot of nutrition, you get some unhelpful chemicals and your kids probably just don't get involved. So even if you start, you know, I think that the trick is to start small with, e- with easy steps and not to feel overwhelmed and maybe choose one goal and just say, okay, on a Friday night, because mm. I get home early on a Friday, we're going to cook together and eat a family meal at the table 
um, and just say maybe I'm going to try and include some more diversity in my breakfast. So breakfast is a great way to start. So just start with one meal. Breakfast you're usually eating at home. You've usually got not too many things distracting you and you can have a bowl of of yogurt with uh, seeds, chia seeds, berries. You can put you can get like five or different foods into your breakfast. Cinnamon, Cinnamon powder, nutmeg, chia seeds. You can really go crazy with your breakfast and just get your breakfast right. And then once that's right, start with lunch and snacks. Or just make a little bit of an effort to read labels. So I've just learned that these things can be overwhelming, but you start with one thing and then you you move on. But diet isn't the only thing. So the other tips are to get your kids outside. So they've got to be exposed to the environment, different environments as much as possible. So sitting at home behind a screen, you know. Yeah, so encouraging your kids to play in the dirt, to play on this in the seaside, um, to go to the forest, to get outside into different environments, to play with each other. Is that there's more allergy in children who who grow up in more sterile environments? Absolutely, yeah. and kids that don't have pets, kids that don't go and socialize with other kids. You know, so especially after COVID, as parents, we're so squeamish about letting our child play with that child that's got a snotty nose. But they should be. They should be sharing their Pine. germs. Yeah. <laughs> Small doses frequently. Yeah. Uh, then the other really, the biggest thing, and this is a note for doctors, um, I'm definitely guilty as a doctor over-prescribing things like antibiotics, neurofen, PPIs, which is, um, and acids. All these things are really important in certain situations and they need it, but they can play havoc with the gut microbiome. Yeah, I feel like pediatric colic, the first line approach to pediatric colic these days seems to be Nexium. Yeah, so I think, you know, then you are over a long period of time suppressing the acid in the stomach and that is going to have an effect on your gut health. And so we have to be careful. We have to just treat things cautiously and really every drug we take, there's a benefit risk. And I think we need to just be aware that the risk to the microbiome is significant. It's more significant than we thought. Yeah. Should we finish up with supplements? Yes. What are your thoughts on a child who only eats three foods? <laughs> so remember, you don't only get your microbiome from your diet. So you can do other things to help. And remember, you can also share your microbiome with your child. The evidence at the moment, and you know, I think it will change. The evidence at the moment is that if a child is healthy and has a good diet, you don't need to supplement with probiotics. But I think if you are struggling with a sick child, um, maybe especially after being on antibiotics, that is when probiotic supplements can be really helpful. So the the UK guidelines that we now have, you should take them for four weeks to recover your gut microbiome. And remember, you want something with lots of different strains. So... I think there's a place for it and I think it will become a bigger, we'll know more about what to supplement and when. But I think always, always first port of call is to try and do it without supplements. Because I just find, and it's it's the whole, my whole history of being a dietitian, um, I've realized this, if you add vitamin C to the diet, it can help in certain ways. But there are a million things in that orange 
that are helping that vitamin C that we didn't even know about. So mm. the orange is better than the vitamin C. Um, so I always think the food, the real food is better than the supplement. But we can use supplements to help us when we're going wrong. Does that make sense? Mm, that's so helpful. Thank you so much for sharing time with me this morning and your vast experience and all these practical tips and tools. I hope that everybody's walking away feeling empowered rather than overwhelmed. And it was such a pleasure. Thanks, Guy. It was great to see you. Earth with heart, with Dr. Sky, I am.